Well, good day and welcome back to the five-day reading plan podcast. I'm Lance Ward and I will be walking us through some highlights of this week's readings and you can always download a copy of this reading plan if you haven't already done so in the description of this podcast. You can also find it at fivedaybiblereading.com. Well, we are in week 48, and if you uh, are following this from January, we're right around the first part of December. We're rounding up the end of the year. Not too many readings left. We are almost there. And this last week, we read several different books. We read The End of Zechariah 9 through 14. We read Ezra 5 and 6, Esther 1 through 6, three Psalms 94, 95, and 139. We finished 1 John, we read all of 2nd and 3rd John, and we started in Revelation chapters 1 and 2. In the last chapters of Zechariah, you probably noticed a couple of familiar New Testament references to the Messiah. Chapter 9, verse 9 pre- previews Jesus' ride on a donkey into Jerusalem, and 11, 12, and 13 is an early reference to Judas's betrayal in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. We also see a prophecy of the crucifixion in chapter 12, verse 10. Did you also notice several references to that day in chapters 12 through 14? As great as the rebuilding of the temple was, something greater was still to come. I think it was Martin Luther who said something like, On my calendar, there are only two days, this day and that day. The people of God looked for it from afar, and we still anticipate that day to this day, the day when the Lord returns and makes all things right. In Ezra 5, we see the immediate context and need for Haggai and Zechariah, who both urged God's people to continue the rebuilding of the temple. And yet, like before, they are still met with opposition. And I love the first line of their response to this opposition in chapter 5, verse 11, when they say, We are the servants of the God of the heavens and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago. This sort of reminds me of Peter and John's response to opposition in the book of Acts, where this group in Ezra also says in so many words, We must obey God rather than men. And so the temple is rebuilt. And as chapter 6 ends, it does so with a glorious celebration of Passover. How long had it been since they had been able to observe this important day in their own land and in their own temple? It only makes sense that they celebrated the occasion with joy, chapter 6 says, because the Lord had made them joyful. You may have seen how this chapter and Psalm 95 are complements to each other, especially verses 1 and 2 of the psalm. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord, shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. As far as the book of Esther goes, you may already know this, but this is the one book in Scripture that never mentions God directly, though it speaks of his people, the Jews. And yet, as we read through it, it is obvious that God is involved, isn't it? There are a few things we might label as coincidences if we didn't know any better, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see what's really going on in this story. As the invisible hand of God works behind the scenes, evil is squelched and God's people are saved. This can be quite instructive for us, can't it? There may be times in our lives where we wonder where God is. At such times, he may seem silent or distant, but no matter how things seem, God is always at work in the lives of his people, even in the midst of quite secular circumstances. 
He can be at work in the promised land in the midst of righteousness and holiness, or he can be at work in a pagan land, in a palace that houses a pagan king with a short fuse who uses women for his own pleasures. There is no place on earth where God cannot work. See also Psalm 139. Where can I go from your presence? One of this story's heroes, maybe its primary hero, is Mordecai, an ordinary man just going about his business who finds himself in the right place at the right time and reveals to us another prominent theme in this redemption story, the theme that says our great God loves using ordinary people to advance his extraordinary plan. If you ever need a confidence boost in the Lord God, Psalm 94 is worth a read. In fact, we ought to wear this psalm out when feeling discouraged. It not only contains hope-filled words and phrases that remind us of God's greatness and the comfort of His strength and presence, but also a few choice words for those who oppose Him. The psalmist does not mince words in that case. Beside verses 18 and 19 of of this psalm, I scribbled, May this be true of me. Here's what it says there. If I say my foot is slipping, your faithful love will support me, Lord. When I am filled with cares, your comfort brings me joy. As I read the popular psalm, Psalm 139, on this go-round, I wrote summaries beside each section that went like this. Lord, you know me through and through, verses 1 through 6. You are with me wherever I am, verses 7 through 12. You created every part of me down to the finest details, verses 13 through 16. I can never escape your thoughts of me, verses 17 through 18. And then, finally, after all this, David finally makes his supplication. The context of this rich and beautiful psalm is the presence of David's enemies, and David asks the Lord to deal with them. But even in that context, David also models a certain humility that says, but if there's any wrong way in me, lead me out of it and toward you. Though David has obvious enemies who are also enemies of God, he refuses to think of himself as flawless in this context. He knows that he has the potential to also offend his maker and friend, and that's the last thing he wants to do. Since coming to the Lord in 1987, for me, 1 John has always been special and memorable, that chapter specifically, because in verses 11 through 13, John makes things very clear regarding eternal life, including a simple but profound idea that I often shared when I have shared the gospel with people. It says this, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have the life. This statement is quite simple, but it's easy to forget if we neglect the gospel and seek to save ourselves in our own power or morality. It also goes hand in hand with the purpose statement John writes in chapter 20 of his gospel. He just wants everyone who reads his words to believe. He wants nothing more than to share news that will save lives for eternity. Second and third John are quite short, but that doesn't mean they are void of powerful truths. Speaking of truth, this term along with love is a key term in all three of John's letters, as you may have noticed. I also noticed John's definition of what love is in 2 John 6, that we walk according to his commands. Again, we see the influence of the upper room discourse here, since in Jesus' own words there, he connected love for him with obedience to him. As we now move into Revelation, try and mark every reference to heaven and what is going on there. Perhaps there is no clearer book in Scripture that tells us what heaven is truly like 
a place of majesty and beauty saturated with the holiness and glory of God. We often refer to heaven as a better place. And while that is wondrously true, it can also be described as a holy place where God's glory stirs up a sense of endless wonder and awe. Another prominent New Testament word, worship, I don't know if you knew this, the word worship is found more times in Revelation than in any other book. As is, interestingly, I don't know if you knew this, the term sexual immorality, which is also found more times in Revelation than in any other single book in the New Testament. Who would have thought? Let me ask you a question, though. Does it really matter what you do with your faith? Is Jesus not only concerned that you have faith, but also that you act on it? Let me put it this way. Even though we are saved by faith, not works, do our works matter to Jesus? You know, I think that question perhaps can best be answered by giving attention to Revelation 2 and 3. We read Revelation 2 this week. We'll read chapter 3 next week. And I don't know about you, but we have what we call twice a year performance reviews in our place of employment here at Crossings. So when you think of Revelation 2 and 3, you might think of it this way. Maybe it's Jesus's performance reviews for each of these seven churches, and it would be helpful to maybe study them and design a chart for each one. Uh, Maybe one, what does Jesus like about each church? That would be called approval. Next column, disapproval. What disappoints Jesus about each church? And then finally, action needed. What does Jesus want each church to do? And if if you've ever had a performance review, it might contain any or all of these ingredients, like what are you doing well? What could you improve on? What do we need to do better this next year? Well, I found that Revelation 2 and 3 is kind of like that. And, And every time I read these chapters where he approves of certain things, where he disapproves of other things, and where he tells the churches, you need to be doing this, I think to myself, I wonder what Jesus would say if he were to give a performance review of the church I'm in, the ministry I'm involved in, most importantly, to me as an individual. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? I don't know that we think about Jesus that way that much, but he wants to see our faith advance. And chances are, if Jesus could sit with us today, he would find things going just the way he wants. He might also find some things in need of course correction. Maybe it will bring these chapters home a little more if we think about that in regard to our own present generation, if we consider what our own performance reviews would say if Jesus showed up today. But for now, can you believe we only have four weeks left? Well, next week we finish up Esther. We see this book coming to, uh, this story coming to a glorious end. We also will read Ezra 7 through 10. We will start Nehemiah 1 through 9. We'll also read Psalms 97, 98, and 140. And we will read Revelation 3 through 7. So keep reading. Let's catch up next week. We're almost there. Just four more weeks to go in the five-day reading plan. So we'll talk to you next week. Have a great week. Until then, thank you.